0: Welcome to my den. Today's conversation is really for any leader in professional services. We're talking accounting, engineering, sales, consulting, all of the above. And we get to have just this amazing dialogue with Amy Horner, who just got named in 2023, a top 50 woman in accounting. But this episode spans so, so far beyond just principles or things that relate to accounting. And Amy's experience surely goes far beyond that as well. In fact, I follow her newsletter, which is so much fun, called Horner's Corner on LinkedIn, where she talks about all all things life and uh, the essence of being a C-suite leader in accounting or finance. So today, stay specially attuned for Amy's tips on why it's so hard to recruit Gen Z into professional services right now and why companies are so far behind the curve. We also dive into the concept of change management and change leadership, which we haven't really explored on this uh, podcast before. So I was super pumped to talk about this with Amy. She is just a phenomenal example of a C-suite executive who has led major change initiatives in various organizations. We also delve a bit into Amy's thoughts on the education system and what happens when parents get so involved in solving problems for their kids instead of helping them fail and make mistakes and come out of that. So stay tuned for that toward the middle of the episode. Before we dive into the conversation today, I definitely want to bring to your attention um, the amazing competition we're in the middle of right now. You've probably heard me talk about it on previous episodes. We have taken 14 to 30 year old Gen Zers and plunged them into a riveting competition, the GPT Innovators Cup. And if you've been listening, you already know that these kids are building businesses using ChatGPT, but we are also coming very close to where the final winners will be announced and prizes will be given out. One of the first prizes will be a feature on Follow Your Different. You may remember an episode way, way back where we interviewed Chris Lockhead. He is the host of Follow Your Different, and their podcast gets over a million downloads per episode. So these kids who are going to rise to the top as winners are in for such an amazing treat. and social cred i might add if you've got a kid who uh, understands that then definitely get them on board Um, it is not too late to actually submit businesses so if you're joining in the last few days of the competition or your kid is 14 to 30 years old then they can still join and submit their business for review and uh yeah we are absolutely pumped i can't wait to reveal the results to you on a future episode all right Buckle up your seats or your time machines, if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Amy Horner. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Amy, I'm so glad to have you. And just especially since we're friends too. It, I just, this conversation is going to be so much freaking fun um i have to ask you and maybe we'll get to talk about this more next week when we're having dinner at this um, what's the place called we're going to next the trolley barn fermentary and food hall it's super cool they have uh, a ton of
1: different beers and other brews they make there then they have three different types of kitchens um one is like a farm to table so a lot of greens and grains One is what they call steel. So if you want some um, octopus, some grilled octopus, they have that. And the other one is their take on traditional bar food. So they'll have like a grilled cheese, but it'll have like something funky on it, um, like pork tenderloin or something along those lines. They have a really interesting menu. So you're gonna love it.
0: I'm literally salivating. I don't think you know how much of a foodie I am. Are you a foodie too? No. I appreciate, I appreciate your kind, though. You give me a lot of great advice and, and a lot of good recommendations. So, thanks. Wait, how? Okay, how can you not be a foodie? Please explain to me like the psychology behind that. I'm too busy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have too many things to do. That's a focus you, on liking <laughs> food. <laughs> Maybe one day, right? Maybe when I finally graduate and there's no more education I could possibly fit under my plate, I can, I can focus on enjoying food a little bit more, but, but yeah, I, I just haven't gotten into the foodie scene.
0: I'm still bat. Wait. Okay. So when you say like, don't have time to enjoy food, what is, what do meals look like for you then?
1: I don't make them. Joe does all our food shopping. He prepares all the meals. I just, I just show up and am internally grateful that that is not something I have to think about or worry about on a regular basis but it's not like dog food. It's like, Oh gosh, no, no. <laughs> hey, but, anything? Um, so we mostly actually focus on like a whole 30 inspired diet. Uh, just a little bit healthier, right. Sticking around the perimeter of the grocery store versus everything that's in the aisles. It's in boxes, cans. Um, I love it, but yeah, I'm not the, I'm not a kitchen person. I'm not, I don't, I don't like cooking. So
0: fair enough. So you're like health- healthy person health junkie but not foodie like not restaurant i think that's fair i think that's a fair way to put it okay okay at least i thought you were gonna tell me like you'd be fine surviving on you know mac and cheese and chicken nuggets pulled out of the freezer because i literally have adult friends who still do that um i i've seen adults still do that you know that's only going to last so long right? At some
1: point, your body is going to rebel against you in some way, shape, or form, and you're going to have to figure out how to eat a vegetable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I actually, one of my former bosses, I've never met someone this extreme. He will not touch anything that is not a piece of meat or white. When you, when you hear like meat and potatoes kind of guy, he's not just a meat and potatoes kind of guy. That was literally all he ate. And I am not exaggerating. We go to conferences, like, you know, travel up to DC. Where did he want to go? He ate at nice steakhouses, but it was literally a steak with potatoes. If a hint of onion touched that plate or whatever, he wouldn't eat it. I've never met someone that extreme. I have. I'm
1: glad that you and I aren't in that boat, especially since we're having dinner together next week. (laughs) (laughs) That would (laughs) be a very judgmental dinner. Uh, I think both of us would be judging the other one quite quite strongly. So, glad that's not our situation.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay, getting off the topic of food, my non-foodie yes. friend. Um, so I have to ask cuz we've never had this conversation. Tell me about Chief because I literally every woman I meet who is a part of Chief is they're some of the most incredible human beings I've ever met, just forward thinking and investing in all sorts of education and younger mm-hmm. people and mm-hmm. like it's amazing what is chief and how in the world does that network exist in, in such a sort of legendary form yeah so chief was started a handful of years ago by founders carolyn childers and lindsay
1: kaplan and at that time their motto and their mission was to create more seats at the table for women and minorities in, in boardrooms and in executive level positions when i joined chief two years ago as a founding member i was still in dc at the time before coming back down here to Charlotte, there were 3,000 of us. There are now over 20,000 chiefs. We've expanded worldwide at this point, which is really cool. The membership really is starting to drive a little bit more of the personality versus the programming that the organization was set up and intended to do. The membership is so genuinely invested, like you just said, in the success of others it's really a give and you will gain mentality, but wanting to send a hand out to other people, peer mentoring, making sure that I think we're leaving the world of business a stronger place than it was when we walked into it. And that means something different to everyone. The thought leadership that comes out of my chief connections is incredible. I have learned. Things that I never even realized went on in the business world, right, from someone that does either a job different than mine or is in an industry different than mine or geographic location that is different than mine. Uh, so it's, it's been a really phenomenal experience. And I, um, I know that you talked to a chief that I'm friends with earlier this week, and it's fantastic that you're making those connections because there really are some, some complete and total powerhouses in the membership.
0: Yes, uh, well, I have definitely experienced that, and this may be getting us into a gnarly topic, but I'm curious to see if it'll go there. I have noticed and call this out if it's if it's an incorrect assumption, but it seems like most of the women in chief who I have spoken with, at least so far, and that's you know sample size of maybe seven women, um, most of them seem to come or have been in, and I know this is your story, in industries that are male dominated, that they had to fight through for years and years and years to have a voice and to speak up, you know, ha- not just have a voice, but have a seat at the table and be able to, you know, be leaders in their various areas. And it seems to me like that's created this entire group of fighters, like women who are fighters and willing to help younger women get into mm-hmm. seats at the table and all of that, which is Really, really cool. So I, I want to touch on that for a second and your perspective there. But secondly, and this may be the conversation it opens, I see a shift in my generation where so many of those challenges that existed with phenomenal women like you I speak with who, are, who have been part of that sort of boys club culture and had to get through that that I and my peers no longer experience in the same sense. And so there's this sort of shared common ground of being women, but also these vastly different work experiences. Has that been your experience with the other chief women? Is it a key driver? I think there's certainly a large amount of that.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, not everybody's story is the same. Uh, Not everyone's experience is going to run in a parallel line to yours, but there's certainly a vibe to that for a good part of the membership. So much of what we work to overcome is that metric-driven diversity mentality. We have one seat for this type of person that's different in whatever way, and we have another seat for this type of person, and we're just kind of filling slots, almost like a really ugly game of Connect Four with different chips. Instead of really focusing on who are the strongest people to put, at this table or, or in this game. That is something I'm passionate about. Let's please stop with the metrics. I appreciate that they're important, but let's focus on the people and their talent and not be so worried about adding a seat or giving up a seat. Let's make sure that all of the seats are filled with the strongest people that we can possibly put in them. So that, that answers the first part of your question. The second part of your question is an interesting one for me personally. Yes, I started my career in the '90s. There were a very interesting set of written and unwritten rules that would probably horrify anybody that is your age. Um, <laughs> we look back on them and laugh, but quite honestly, they're they're not very funny. The challenges are still there; they're just different. And so I think you know, 25 years from now, when when you get to this point and you can reflect back, you'll have forged the way for someone that has the age difference that you and I have, you just might not necessarily realize you're doing it. I think I had some cognizance that it was happening when I was in it and I was part of it, but probably not as much as I appreciate it now, looking back on it, how different work is for everyone, in- including for women.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I, mm-hmm. I think it's really, really interesting to go back to your point about this metric driven diversity I just had Kate McGregor on the show a couple... Well, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, She's the VP of Research and Innovation for With You, With Me. She and I centered our conversation, at least at the beginning, around this topic. She goes as far as to say DEI is dead. And what she means by that, you know, she's a millennial woman. Mm -hmm. She means by that is this metric driven connect for thing like you were just sharing yeah. is a the completely wrong way to approach diversity mm-hmm. equity and inclusion mm-hmm. and because of that because every company has started checking boxes f- filling quotas you know creating diversity recruitment positions only to you know bring in for interviews diverse candidates who never had a shot at a job mm-hmm. it's just so i don't even know the right word to describe it it's not a good representation of what the initial diversity initiative was meant to portray or to overcome. And it has become, it, at least in my opinion, this checkbox to your point, that's not really solving even the mentality or the heart behind it is sort of in the right place. It's not really solving the actual challenges that exist within leadership. So where have you experienced that, whether it's you know not even just your personal experience, but do you have other women leaders who are in in, you know, leadership roles right now who are really struggling to get this diversity is not a checkbox or quota message across? And, and how does that play out? Not specifically like
1: that. I think where we fall into danger with anything is what gets measured, gets done, and what gets rewarded is, is what people will focus on. And, and that's why I say, you know, it's so metric driven right now. It's become maybe a little bit too impersonal. And that's where the problems lie, right? The problems with the lack of diversity come from not wanting to talk to or not being comfortable talking to or working with people who are different than you. And if that's the problem we're trying to solve, no chart, graph, or checklist is going to get us there, right? So we've almost created another set of problems instead of addressing the actual problem. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say DEI is dead. I completely appreciate her stance. And it's a very provocative statement. And I love that she is making it from her observation and from her work. I think it's good. And I think it's important for us to continue to focus on it. I just think we need to focus on the people and not so much on the metrics and the box checking.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. And to be clear here, so Mm -hmm. we'll talk about your background, but we're talking accounting law firms. Yes. In, like I worked in AEDC and plus legal for a couple of years. And every conference I went to, I could count the number of women and minorities on probably one hand, you know, four or 500 people conferences. Yeah. And that was definitely boys club. But there are many other industries, it seems like who are doing a much better job of embracing DEI in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. And at least from my perspective, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, I see it a lot with small companies founded by younger founders, um, fast-growing startups, and even some, I-, I can think of a few right now, medium-sized companies with you know, an owner who, one actually comes to mind right now, a boomer owner who is, one of the most just welcoming and open people I have ever seen. And he's being really intentional about saying, if I hire people into leadership roles who I have worked with for a long time, we're getting siloed. You know, we're in our own echo chambers. And he's recognized that and said, how do I get people around me who are the best people for the job, even if the best person is a white male who is young that may be the best person for the job but he's also making sure that in every round of hiring that they've got diverse candidates and it's not a quota and yeah. so what that ends up looking like is much more of a representation of what the US demographic is i know this is not everyone's stance and from my perspective it seems like if you have representation that looks very similar to the US demographic you know we have what 18% Um, black people in America, it's about 40 ish percent white. And then there's other minorities in five, seven, 10%. -hmm. If your company looks pretty similar to those, you're probably doing a pretty decent job of making sure you've got the best people in the right jobs, right? Like what's your thought on that? I think it's so interesting.
1: A long time ago, someone told me that you hire in your likeness, right? So you hire people who have some sort of similarity to you or that you see a reflection of yourself in. And they told me this in response to like two or three people I had hired who were all young women who did look a lot like me and have very similar backgrounds. And it made me in my mid to late 20s take a really hard look at you know, do I have bias here? Should I be doing a better job in and of myself of understanding really what that quote means and make sure I'm not falling into that trap. And so, you know, that was really illuminating. And I was lucky enough to hear that a long time ago. So that has had a career arc and a career impact for me. I will tell you every single person that reports me right now is a woman. Um, And that was intentional because the layer below me is still high positions of leadership and to make sure that women are represented in those levels so that they, next step is executive team c-suite if i can help with that then that is important to me
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. i'm so glad you brought that up i've i've never heard someone say that clearly you know maybe the bias that exists or has existed for men who grew up in a time when you did see primarily men who were like you at university, for example like that mm-hmm. the reason the boy cl- boys Club existed was because that was who they were around in college or friend groups growing up or whatever and I don't blame anyone for that and we're all hiring based on likeness or trust right like as human beings, we want to hire people that we trust and who are we going to trust but the people we've been around for 5, 10, 20 30 years. Mm-hmm. So I find myself in a similar place too it's you know me as a native digital, even though we're building a company that is, you know, native digital driven and focused and that's part of that's part of the message we're trying to portray, right? The what we're evangelizing is this can be done by native digitals, but I have to watch myself too, like making sure I'm not hiring all I don't know, early college grads who are, you know, white and come from an untraditional background and like mm-hmm. I have to make sure I don't fall into those traps. So it's mm-hmm. it's really really important to recognize that for literally all of us.
1: Yeah, well, and I know we're gonna get into this a little bit later, but it's really like a lifetime of programming and it's programming that you probably aren't even aware that you have. I'll give you an example, Uh, last, not last month, the end of December, uh, we were on vacation and something happened in the condo that we were in required a plumber to come. We had an issue with the hot water heater. And so the condo association took care of that. They called, they said, here is the window of when the plumber will be there. Can you make sure someone's there to let them in? I answered the door for the plumber. It was a young lady. I was not expecting that. I wasn't. And then I was like, you know what, Amy, shame on you. Because why would you just automatically assume you're going to be opening the door to a man? So it happens to all of us. uh, You know, I think we do have to give ourselves a little bit of, not only grace, but making sure that we, like every time that happens, making sure that we take a step back and think and say, "Okay, okay, right, I've learned
0: this somewhere. Let's do our best to unlearn it. And to your point, I would assume opening a door to a female plumber is part of that learning experience.
1: I'm sure the look (laughs) of shock on my face is not the first time she's seen it. She was so polite and so nice, but I definitely, I think I took a step back. I was so stunned.
0: (laughs) You're like, can't, it it is amazing. Like how all those, you know, stereotypes start filtering through your brain. Like, wait, wait, wait a second. Like can, can a woman, you know, does he, do we even know what a leak is <laughs> like can we No please? I knew she knew what a leak was she did a phenomenal job she was very competent it's just she she
1: didn't fit the the program in my brain of what a typical plumber looks like we all have one you know we all know it we all know what that is um and you know she was phenomenal and, and quite honestly able to fit in smaller spaces which we needed um so she was definitely a, a good competitive advantage for her against her peers and um but yeah the the biases and kind of that programming is everywhere. We just have to to do our best to realize it and to try to unravel it.
0: You know, I've never had this conversation with someone, but it's been on my mind quite a bit. Um, so based on how, you know, just humans work, and I know we're going to get into the psychology of change, so maybe this will be <laughs> a psychology of, of how we stereotype, but I heard someone recently, and don't quote me on this, but something like your gut has five times the number of like neurons or sensors that your brain does. And so when people say you have a gut feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, doctors will say, listen to that because even if they don't have the same function, like your gut and your brain, there's this sense that, you know, your gut can tell you a lot about a circumstance or situation that you may not get logically thinking through your brain. Now that can have some really like negative implications, right? If you always listen to your gut and it's been programmed to think, obviously your brain can have the same sort of, you know, programming, Mm -hmm. but we learn based on experiences. It's, you know, that seem hard to change or hard to unravel or find the, the root of what's causing certain stereotypes. But hasn't it always been like our stereotypes or our, the stereotypes we form have protected us you know since the beginning of time so like back thinking about when humans were hunter gatherers and we would you know we were we had danger all around us and all those things like we would build certain con- like there were certain conditioning right that like went into okay this area is safe or unsafe based on the number of animals that might attack us there or the other tribal population that might you know attack us or like we built those stereotypes for our own brains and our own safety to protect us and our families. Mm -hmm. And it seems like to a lesser extent, you know, now it's not, I'm going to die, but it it might be, I don't want to hire the wrong person, or I don't want to associate with the wrong person. I don't want to be misinformed or whatever the case might be, that we put up those same stereotypes based on experiences that happen super early in our childhood Mm -hmm. that were informed by who knows, for me as native digital, it could have been something I saw on the on social media when I was seven or eight or nine or whatever. Um, or it might be an experience with a friend, like all those things inform us. And it seems like maybe the wrong approach, <laughs> and I know this is long-winded, I want to get your thoughts on it, but maybe the wrong approach is to ignore the stereotypes. Like there's some many learnings we can take from those experiences but to maybe in our heads take the parts that are good Mm -hmm. and extract those and make sure we focus on the things that may be unhelpful about those stereotypes. And I find it for myself, those are really hard to distinguish. I think it's interesting. I would like to think that even though it's not part of many of our daily
1: issues, that we would all be able to identify like tiger bad, safety good, right? Um, That sort of observation handed, handed down over. To your point, hunters and gatherers were an incredibly long time ago. I have a good friend. Her name is Jenny Blumenthal. She is a chief. She recently wrote a book. It's called Corporate Rehab. It's phenomenal. Um, I heard her speak a few weeks ago, and she has done some research. that all the way back to possibly three to five years old, those biases and that programming is always there. And, and, uh, you know, we will talk about this a little bit later with kind of, like, um, change, fear of change. But some of this happens so young, we're not even aware that it's happening. Uh, we could get into the nature nurture debate. And if anybody is playing along at home, Hannah has said native digital twice, just letting, she's rolled that one out two times already. Um, but nature versus nurture says that it's really now genetically more nature than it is nurture. Um, and there's a lot less, nurture that comes into who we end up being than there is individualized experiences being raised in the same home. So I know we've talked a little bit about how your parents raised you and and completely different than my very conservative parents and how they raised me. Um, But I had a younger brother who grew up in the same home. We're completely different people, right? And, And so it's not so much the nurture, but it's how each individual child has individual experiences and how they do end up. So yes, you could have seen something um, when you were seven external to the home that you were raised in and external to your nature um, that will have a significant impact on you. I do think that that is interesting from the perspective that people now have real-time access to a lot of things that we didn't when I was growing up. And so it does provide an opportunity to make people more well-rounded before they get to, like, let's say, university, which for me was really my first exposure to a lot of people who were very, very different than I was, right? Um, typically, when you're in, um, in high school, you're going to live in a community where there's, there's a lot of similarities amongst your peers, Um, and so now I I do think that people have the opportunity to get a little bit more well-roundedness sooner. Like I said, it has the potential to be better. It also has the potential to be worse, right? Because if all you're doing is reinforcing a bias that you have by only listening to content or watching videos of people who are just like you, you're just kind of going to crawl safer into that shell. So, so it has the opportunity, I think, to do both it just is is going to be up to the person and how they how they receive it, how they use it.
0: I'm glad you brought that up. It reminds me of the this juxtaposition that is happening right now like with the what you described of your childhood, you know, it, it, and tell me if I heard this incorrectly, but it seems like when you were in high school, you said when you got to college, that was the exposure to different people, different ways of thinking, et cetera. Right. Then you have this whole new generation, which I think is where you were going. Like you have this whole new generation of native digitals who are being exposed to global perspectives from a really, really young age. So, and I had, um, Carlos Baradello on the show a few months ago, and he was, he grew up in Argentina and, uh, has a really amazing story, but he was talking about this concept of He was natively local, and now you have native global, a native global generation. So the Mm -hmm. idea of, you know, in in years past, and my parents will talk about this, you know, they grew up in a pretty, you know, I don't know if it's a silo, just a bubble, right? Like, they grew up in one area. There was no internet. You had access, your life experience was shaped by only the people that you knew around you and your school and your community and your church and your activities and all that. Mm -hmm. And now... The the floodgates are open, and there's of course we could get into whole all sorts of negative and positive implications of that. But as a native digital, you're faced with so many perspectives so quickly that it seems like for my generation, this was my experience to some extent. I think it's a whole lot more intense for Gen Alpha but you're exposed to so much so early, it's almost like you need your parents to be much more intentional about giving you a little bit more of that bubble. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, yeah. you don't know where you stand on Anything by the time you're like ten years old, you're expected to have you know a political stance on every single thing that's happening in the world, and have you know have heard of all of the latest trends and know all of you know everything that's happening on TikTok to YouTube to what the latest creators' lifestyles are like. Like you're expected to know all these things by your peers, mm-hmm. and it's honestly freaking overwhelming. So anyway, there, there's there's so much we can unpack there, but I I want to get into this. Psychology of change. So tell me just briefly, Mm -hmm. like. How did you? I know you came from accounting, and you were in sales, and you're you've you've worked in so many different facets of things. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but didn't you go from being like a controller, like having a, an accounting background, straight into a sales position at one point, or switch gears entirely, careers entirely? I did. You're like every
1: like every accountant, right? That's what That's every what accountant aspires to be um you know i was in audit i I did go into accounting oversight i I do know how to do the day-to-day accounting i haven't spent a whole um a whole lot of time in my career there but i really like symmetry and and that is where my love for accounting is accounting is all about balance and, and making sure that everything is the same on the left as it is on the right and that is how i ended up there um I never really enjoyed sitting in a room just by myself, handling accounting or or doing reporting. That that wasn't for me. I was always much more of a people person. And so the vast majority of my roles were operational accounting. And just what that means is you're really involved in the overall operations of the business. I was in D.C. at the height of the housing market. And homes were moving really quickly. And I thought, you know, this would be a good opportunity to try a different piece of the business I was in. Something I still really loved, the vast majority of the homes that were sold by the home builder that I worked for were to first-time home buyers, right? So they're achieving the American dream. A lot of people in my age range who were doing something that they had wanted to do for a very long time. It was incredibly meaningful. It was very emotional. It was very important. A lot of times their parents or their family or their friends would come by to see the houses that were under construction. I mean, you were really a, a big part of a first step in people's lives, and there was such great energy to that. And so I did. I went into sales. I left my very safe accounting is recession proof for anyone that's listening and is maybe trying to decide what kind of career you want to go into, go into accounting. You will always have a job. There's always a shortage of accountants. Um, and I left my very recession proof, very safe, enjoy, honestly, enjoyable job. And I took a hundred percent commission position as a sales trainee and I was a trainee for five or six months before they finally gave me my own community. And I sold houses. It was an incredible learning experience from the perspective of you don't get paid if you don't do what it is you're supposed to do. Uh, little more gray area in life than accountants would ever uh, see in their day-to-day, right? I'm not gonna say I broke any rules. I'm, I'm sure I certainly came up against some, some heavy bending, but it was just so interesting completely different perspective right the whole entire concept of you eat what you kill you know you don't get paid if you don't sell and it doesn't close uh if you don't make people happy they're going to give you a horrible jd power score and that's going to impact a lot of a lot of other things and bigger than you right jd power scores are big for the entire organization not the individual uh so yes i uh i did that for a while i did that for about three years and then the market really bottomed out and i decided to Get back into accounting, but it wasn't really straight accounting. It was outsourced accounting. So you were the product. So now I was selling myself and my services, my capabilities, um, and working for a lot of different organizations at once, which gave me that variety. So for a while, that was a really nice mix for me.
0: I love that journey. Why do you think accounting is having so much trouble right now with recruiting Gen Zers?
1: I think it just has a really bad and unknown reputation. A lot of the states, including North Carolina, are working to get accounting into STEM so that kids are exposed to it in third, fourth, fifth grade, as opposed to now a lot of times so many high schools have cut some of the accounting courses as electives. And so kids aren't exposed to accounting until they go to college. If they're business majors, I can tell you having seen Intro to Accounting within the last two years out of the local community college, it's not fun. Um, but this shit show is my least favorite class for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I got some really bad grades in accounting courses in college. It, it was not set up. I think for people who, who really weren't into mathematics to do well at, I really appreciate being able to understand a set of financials and understand how an organization is doing from a financial perspective, but yeah, the, the course curriculum is, is horrible Um, And I also think accounting has a reputation for sitting in a back room, in a dark room, an unwindowed room, and working an unsustainable amount of hours. And yes, that's how it was in the 80s and 90s. I'm sure there are a few places where that still is how it is today. But that bias, right, that reputation, that programming is is permeated. And I think the profession is having a really tough time overcoming it.
0: So in other words, we need more movies like the accountant that shows him as like some incredible, have you seen this movie? I know, what is it, Ben Affleck? And is he a spy of some yeah. sorts? Yes, yeah. <laughs> he's an accountant by day, you know, brilliant with numbers and figures and a spy by night and yeah. it's action and it's thrilling. Yes. Yeah, but we need them for kids. Based on a true story, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, shows have a lot to do with influence. And I, I found that we're actually talking about that with, with the skills mm-hmm. of this idea that because college is permeated in all of the teen dramas i mean take you know never have i ever or any of the shows that teens watch as like you know enforcing all the stereotypes of this kids who are on sports teams are dumb the kids who are geeks are all the ones in drama and math clubs and debate and there's you know those stereotypes. And then of course, all the geeks are trying to get into the Ivy League schools. I'm like, yeah, we're reinforcing all these stereotypes because they're in the shows that our teenagers watch. So whether it's, you know, reinforcing non-traditional or non-linear career paths Mm -hmm. or non-traditional college paths, or that accounting can be an interesting pursuit, or at least part of the jungle gym to play on for part of your career, like that should be in our Kids' TV shows and the media they're consuming, or at least on TikTok. I haven't seen any accountants on TikTok, Amy. We need to change that. Well, I'm on TikTok, so,
1: but I don't talk about accounting. I talk (laughs) about goal setting. I talk about goal setting (laughs) and personal branding. So, you know, I'm just too far off the reservation at this point in my career. You know, I do agree with that. I know stereotypes have been around in TV, movies, and books for the longest time, right? When I was growing up, exactly what you just described is not any different than the teen programming that we saw. And was not any different than kind of the mean girl culture and um, the popular kid culture in high school. So, you know, unfortunately, it just continues to manifest itself going forward. Um, I don't know that that ever truly goes away. I would have loved to have uh, gone to Harvard, but I never would have been encouraged to do it, right? Because I was a high school athlete, blonde hair. Um, and, And so it was never anything that would have been on my radar because no one encouraged me to try it.
0: Wait, are you on TikTok as Horner's Corner? I am on TikTok as Horner's Corner. corner? Okay. Maybe Horner's Corner should go interview some young, you know, accountants who just graduated college and get them to, you know, spice up what accounting looks like. And who knows? Maybe Horner's Corner could make a difference in how accounting is seen. Only if
1: you commit to making me a fancy emblem for my microphone, Hannah.
0: Oh my gosh. I will send you the links. It's like, it literally takes 10 seconds. (laughs) You know, you can buy those like mic flags, Mm -hmm. um, just off literally anywhere. You just like drop a logo and it's amazing.
1: Yeah. I love it. Um, but that every time I see you interview, I I fixate on your, on your pizza pie wedge to skills, uh, (laughs) emblem on your microphone.
0: (laughs) I'm glad to know that's the standout. Not, not my, uh, hair that I spend way too little time on. Um, (laughs) Okay, let's talk about about the psychology of change. Yeah. I know you spent most of your career. Is that a fair statement? Most of your career in leading, in leading change initiatives, or at least the the most recent part of your career, leading change initiatives. You're making me do math. Okay, let's go with at least <laughs> half. Let's call it that. Okay, okay, half your career leading change initiatives. What a what an odd career, but we're not going to get into that because it's just a cool career, and I know you landed in it because you're amazing. Um. Why do people fear change from your perspective? Like, why is it so difficult for every organization to push through literally any change, it seems like, whether it's a small tech change or process change all the way up to, of course, larger strategic initiatives? Why do we resist it?
1: Yeah, I think part of it starts a very, very long time ago. Let, let's think about any little kid that's on a playground, and they're running around, they're having a great time. And what are the adults around them doing, Hannah? Slow down. You're going to hurt yourself. Fine. Don't touch yeah. that. Don't do this. You're going to fall and, and you know skin your knees. Um, be mm-hmm. careful. And that programming impacts all of us differently. Every single one of those adults is best intentioned. But what if instead of saying that, we said to these little kids, hey, you know what? You're going to run around you're gonna have a great time, you're gonna wear yourself out, and you might fall and that's okay. And if you fall and get a little bit more than a bump and bruise, that's okay too, and we'll fix it. The message isn't difficult, but the impact is wildly different. We've been doing that for decades. to little kids, and, and, um, and then they come out, and they come into the workforce, and now we've taught the vast majority of people to be afraid of running too hard, to be afraid of something new, to be afraid of falling down, to be afraid of failing, and so that translates into being afraid of innovation and change, doing something outside of the way they were taught. I can't tell you how many people I've experienced do a certain task or execute a certain procedure the way they were taught when they first started with the organization. And the reason they haven't changed it isn't because they haven't thought about how to change it. It's because the person who taught them how to do it is still there and they don't want to upset that person or hurt their feelings. So you have a phenomenal amount of the workforce This is actually not innovating because they've been taught if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. You need to be kind to people at all times, right? You never know what someone is going through. If at all, be kind. Don't say something to hurt someone else's feelings. And that has translated into never change anything. And we get stuck. And I'll be provocative. It kills companies, right? The fear to change something, the fear to innovate kills companies. History is littered with them. Someone said Buick to me the other day. Buick has made a little bit of a comeback, right? I don't know that they're necessarily dead. Kodak. Kodak was so in on film. They owned digital photography technology. They gave it to someone else. And they died, right? There are just so many organizations where they were so wedded to not hurting someone's feelings, to not getting hurt on the playground, to not wanting to do something different. No, you know, that was it for them. Uh, And so it is really interesting when I talk about strategic change for the most part, it's really not the change to the tech, the change to the widgets, the change to the service offerings. It's the people, either the recipient of the change, the person who needs to execute the change, the customer. Right. Those are all the barriers to strategic change. And there's there's a huge psychology behind it. And it's rooted so far back. You know, we talked about programming and bias already that's where it comes from.
0: So I want to get into the corporate side in a second, but let's go back to childhood. So your example of the playground and how parents are always teaching kids or, you know, helping them not fail, not fall. I fully believe, of course, that extends into our education system, which was created to spit out people who thought in a very mechanical process to make them all think the same, right? Because this was created back in oh, the 1800s, industrial to create revolution, workers, yes, exactly to create create great little factory workers. That's that's what it was meant to do, right? And it hasn't shifted for the most part. Right I mean, off. I didn't realize this, Amy, until recently. I'm sure you've known this for years. I didn't realize that it was a brand new concept during the industrial revolution to segregate the topics, you know, have math taught in one class, art taught in another class, science taught in a different class that was in like, literally that model of educating was intended to. Help create little better machine factory workers because you could segment the topics and then if a kid was interested in one thing, you know they didn't know how to apply it to somewhere else and 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 so there's this revolutionary school you may have may have heard of them and I don't recall the exact name but it was the subject of a documentary that um, Ted Dintersmith produced with Greg Whiteley um, it's called Most Likely to Succeed and these kids it's a school in um, it's it's outside outskirts of LA um, and their entire approach is how do we integrate topics together? They have no testing, literally no testing. The students are evaluated based on showcases, exhibitions. So for example, you might have a classroom where their major project for the exhibition is let's take a concept like why? do civilizations rise and fall? What causes them to rise and fall? Well, then these kids are guided by the instructors to debate each other, use, you know, use Google and YouTube and everything to research this, then debate each other, then to come up with whatever way they want to portray the rise and fall of civilization. So that could be an engineered mega piece that hangs on the wall. One of these groups of kids did this that has gear icons. They're using engineering and geometry components to create this thing. So it's like that class, quote unquote, was a combination of history, debate, writing, creative thinking, engineering, math, like all of those subjects were put in one. And the end result is this incredible piece that that shows the kids thought through from A to Z, how to make this thing happen instead of siloing math from the art, Mm -hmm. from the debate, from the history. And what came out of this, they had interviews with the parents and the parents were like, we're really, really hesitant because we don't know if our student in this high school is going to get into a college because they're not taking traditional tests and they're not jumping the hoops. And just the, fear mechanism that, you know, these parents had of like, do I trust this school? Do I trust the way they're teaching? Um, so what, what's your reaction to that? And, and how does our education system play into what we see it happening in work?
1: I think it sounds really cool. I would say that the analytical thinking, right? The creative thinking you touched on that in that description, those are things that all of us could use more of. I do get the sense Um, You know, as a non-parent, this is probably a dangerous comment. But I do get the sense that parents are so involved in solving problems for their kids instead of teaching their kids how to solve their own problems, that analytical thinking is something that we should consider bringing into the education system so that people do get it. That is a big change that I do see with a lot of newer grads and you know someone coming out and, and having kind of covid piece of education certainly has a little bit to do with it right but analytical thinking being able to problem solve you know like if i give you a step a and i expect you to get to e can you get there without phoning a friend or calling your mom and dad right like can you get there can you figure out b c and d uh and that's really analytical thinking and making sure that you can problem solve it's a skill that, you know, I work on improving every day. Um, and it's it's certainly a skill that I would love to see end up somehow in some piece of curriculum. Uh, I think there are a lot of little tricks that can teach people how to problem solve, right? If you're stranded on a raft in the middle of the ocean, have you done that exercise? Are you familiar with that one? Uh, here are the 12 things no, you have and list them in order for which they'll, you know, most likely get you rescued before you starve to death or burn up from sun in the middle of the sea. You know, there's some just really interesting um, techniques for it, but I'd love to see us do more of it in education. I don't know that you and I are gonna solve the American education system, although we could probably give it a good shot. Um, But, you know, I do agree with that. It's a lot of memorization for the purpose of a grade. And that's not learning. Back to metrics, back to metric-driven outcomes. Uh, So I do think that we could take a hard look at it. I hope that with so much change that's coming from the way people learn, access to technology, you know, I hope it will start to evolve a little bit different and be better intentioned for the way that people do learn now, as opposed to the way that people learned in the nineteen fifties.
0: Time will tell. Always does. So, yes, so true, so true. Thank you for that. Okay, so now shifting into the workplace Mm -hmm. and how you see this evolving, what are some ways or levels of thinking that you've seen having to get unbound Mm -hmm. for someone to recognize? Wow, I really do have a fear of change. It's not that I'm just resisting it or that it's not necessary or all the things people say when a new change comes their way of oh, we'll address that later or I don't really think it's needed or you know, all these sort of fluff things that we throw out. What does it take for someone to realize I have a fear of change and I need to unpack that in order to be a more innovative person or innovative thinker?
1: Yeah, a couple dominant things that come to mind when you ask that question. First of all, people do have a connection between change in technology and job security. There have been so many technical pieces of what used to be work 10, 15, 20 years ago that are no longer around from process perspective because tech handles them for us. That's a perception. I think it's a ill-advised one, because jobs still exist, they're simply different, right? So so an easy one, we'll pick an accounting one. People used to pay vendors by hands with checks, right? They used to be handwritten checks and then to be filed somewhere and then that information will be input into the system. And then we evolved into checks that came out of the printer from the system. And now we've evolved to online bill pay, which everyone should be familiar with because they all should be doing it from their own bank account um and electronic payments a lot of people resisted that because they felt like if the computer was going to do online bill pay for them the software and the technology they weren't going to have a job now they do have a job they're performing analytics on all kinds of metrics (laughs) i have bashed metrics earlier which is why i'm laughing but on On turn metrics, on how much we're investing in a certain type of vendor, on how much we're investing in a certain type of expense or training or whatever it is, they are now, instead of processing, they are analyzing. To me, it's actually a heck of a lot more fun, right? Wouldn't you understand why something is happening versus it just happened? Like, cool. Uh, so, So I think that is the first thought when you ask that question is that people fear it because they think they won't have a job.
0: So, what you're essentially describing mm-hmm. is when a job shifts from when, when technology helps us yes. to shift a job from the mechanics of doing something yes. to the why of doing something or the analysis of it. You said it's that seems more fun and more fulfilling. Yes. Do you think that there is a perhaps a mismatch? That's happening here as a, as a fear reaction to change that is that as coming back to what you said earlier, since we've been trained from the beginning of time to think of fear of failure or feel fear of falling that our immediate sense is, oh my gosh, what's getting taken away from me instead of, wow, look at, look at the more meaningful, easier, more effective work I could be doing Mm -hmm. if I'm no longer having to do these mechanical processes? Like, do you think humans, if, if we could retrain our brains, it might be seen as a positive thing when AI or tech takes over a component of our job instead of as a negative one? Absolutely,
1: because you, like you just said, you're, you're trained to be safe, right? You're trained not to hurt yourself. You're trained not to run too fast. Um, and, and so, yes, absolutely. There, there's a positive outlook on every single situation. Uh, you know, someone asked me the question the other day, it was, this is the standard, Standard question, right? Tell me about a time that you failed and what did you learn from that? I'm going to come back to my change answer in a minute, but I laughed, honestly, even though that probably wasn't a very nice thing to do. And my answer was, I fail every day. There's something I fail at every day. I'm a Peloton user. I can tell you I am horrible at that thing. I have never achieved 100% on that Peloton and more than likely I never will. But what's important is I keep trying and I don't see it as failure. I see it as an opportunity for growth, to get better to show progress? If you're not failing, are you progressing? Right, are you learning? And and so I I do agree with your suggestion, if people can look at things through a more positive lens versus the, oh, scarcity, I'm losing something lens, that then sure, uh, people will maybe be a little bit more embracing of change. One of the things I see a lot People have great pride in their work. Human beings, most of us, really want to do a good job at whatever it is we've been hired to do. That is meaningful to us, right? We can go home at the end of the day or go upstairs for me at the end of the day, right in my home office right now, um, and be like, you know what? I'm really pleased with what I did today. I feel really good about it. Um, I feel fulfilled. I contributed, and when they are told that all of a sudden they have to do something completely differently, it can be emotional for them because now you're saying, well, what you've been doing that you have so much pride in is actually not the best way to do things, (laughs) or the wrong way to do things, or we're completely taking it away because it wasn't, they think, if we're taking this away, what I wasn't providing value. And then people are—they're hurt, right? That hurts people's feelings. And when people's feelings are hurt, they—they they do what, right? They clam up, they shut down, turtle head back in the shell, feet digging in, no, I'm not much happening. Mm mm. Um, and so it's really those two pieces, and it's all about the people. And, and I think people do want to progress, right? I mean, we touched on the Industrial Revolution—that was eons ago. But let's talk about the digital revolution, right? Let's talk about AI. Let's talk about all the things that have probably been invented and rolled out in the last 12 months that you and I can't even list with our own 20 little fingers combined. Uh, people are doing that. They're not dropping out of the sky. So people do want to change, but it's when, you, when it's that emotional piece that you're giving them, often unintentionally, feedback that what they've been doing either was wrong or straight up was horrible or wasn't valued or is no longer relevant. um, Now you've tapped into a human emotion that's not going to get you to a place where they're going to willingly collaborate in your change effort.
0: Do you think to some extent, people may be going through stages of grief in in a sense? (laughs) (laughs) Possibly, yes. I mean, there's all sorts of stages of loss, right?
1: Or stages of something different. So, so, yes, to your point,
0: I I think they are, right? Um, I mean, one example, just this has been on my mind lately, with the revolution of AI and art and the fact that AI has won an art competition, I see, I have a lot of artists in my life and we have these conversations all the time. I really want to hear their perspective of, you know, we thought AI was coming after blue collar jobs first. Yeah. That's what we've been told by sci-fi fiction and movies forever, right? Robots were going to take over blue-collar jobs. And what are they coming for first? white collar jobs. Like you would think it would be, you know, the mechanical processes first, then maybe robots in factories and all that. And then maybe, you know, accounting or these white collar professions. And then the creatives were in the way near future, like, you know, hundreds of years from now, we might finally get to AI that has the level of creativity of an artist. Mm -hmm. But what's happening is the opposite. It's attacking, you know, chat GPT and these AI tools building art are attacking the professions we thought were the safest. Mm -hmm. And you see this revolt from artists. I don't know if you saw the lawsuit that art um, artists are bringing against. There is an AI art tool that is right. Currently being sued by a group of artists who are saying, you know, based on the premise that none of the AI would know how to build art if they didn't have the human artists before Mm -hmm. them. So it's a copyright infringement. And anyway, it's a whole thing to unpack, but I'm going to be curious to see how it unfolds because Me not being an artist, (laughs) very, very far from a visual artist, looking from an outside perspective from a business lens, I'm thinking, wow, what an incredible opportunity for artists to become um, distinctive in their craft from the art that AI is producing, maybe make income from these really efficient tools and then sell their incredible art pieces as boutique or higher priced or, you know, relics, like make use this as an advantage to really elevate the true art that you're doing on real, you know, oil canvas on canvas and oil or acrylic or whatever, like use it as a differentiator. But what we're really seeing in the market is artists revolting against their jobs potentially being taken. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's a lot of emotion in that when you've sacrificed to be an artist. And anyway, it's a whole other topic to unpack, but it's one example that I'm seeing right now of this fear of stability, to your point, or this scarcity mentality Mm -hmm. rather than innovation. Well, I think
1: it's interesting. So I, so I hadn't read about that. Although I did read, I was it last week or the week before that chat GPT went through an entire interview process and got itself a job. Um, and yep. so I thought that that was fascinating. Uh, don't try this at home kids not recommended. <laughs> but, yes. Recommended. <laughs> That's a whole other, whole other conversation. Well, I mean, chat GPT can't show up in your place for work. Right. Um, but I do think that's interesting because it will be the artist or group of artists that sees that instead of a threat as an opportunity that harnesses it, that understands it, that harnesses it first, that will be on the cutting edge, that will gain some sort of market share for themselves or even you know, face of the industry sort of work. They They will become a polarizing set of people because you will have people that embrace it that say, Oh my goodness, look at what they're doing. Isn't that fabulous? And then you'll have the other group of people that say, you know, they're ruining it for everyone, all of us traditionalists. Right. Um, but all this change and all this progress, first of all, it's not going to go anywhere, right? We're not going backwards. Um, otherwise you and I would be wearing corsets and waiting for our horse and buggy to come pick us up. And that sounds awful to me. I can tell that it sounds awful. to Oh you yes, t- well.
0: Oh my gosh. I'm so glad I board, was born in this century, just saying. I am too.
1: I am too. Living in the South, uh, like we do, I'm sure you have visited some of these legacy cities like Savannah and Charleston and seen the tours and just been like, wow, woo, interesting. By cooking
0: on a fire, peeing in a pot under your bed at night. Uh,
1: yes, the, the reason room. that window boxes exist. Kids, Google why window boxes exist. Flower boxes exist, you will be terrified. Um, You might need to Google this. It looks to me like you don't know. Okay. We're not going to talk about it. This this is a (laughs) a non-poop emoji conversation, but um, it just, you know, progress is, it's been fought and embraced for a long time and it's just going to continue to happen. And why fight it, right? Why not use it for better or for good or, or to challenge yourself or to expand something, you know, or to gain a new skill. I mean, heck now, maybe I can actually finally paint a watercolor that doesn't look like it was done by me 40 some years ago. Right. Um, I do not have an artistic vein in my body,
0: but now now maybe I can do something really creative and, and that's uh cool. Great. hundred percent. Or I, I couldn't design an app, you know, even years ago. And now we have tools like Adalo where you can drag and drop things and you could build a fully, functioning app yeah. with no coding skills, no design skills. Yeah. You know, it, it's absolutely mind boggling yeah. what we can do now. Well, I thought it was so
1: fun. You and I were on, um, we were on a group call with, with three soon to be college graduates was it last week or, or the week before. And yes, and two perfect. of them are already CEOs of their own company and they've started an app and they haven't graduated from college yet. And, and they have, both of them had really fabulous and fascinating ideas they're solving a problem. Uh, I mean, that's why you want to start a business, right? To provide a service or solve a problem. And, and they both were really phenomenal. And it, it made, me, made me laugh, Hannah, because the last, my last year of college, my biggest stressor with coming out into the workforce was figuring out what texture of good paper that I was going to print my resumes on to take them and hand them out at the career fair to the big four professionals that had come to recruit accounting majors. Wow. Slightly different.
0: That almost sounds kind of um, blissful. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> there's pluses and minuses
1: to analog versus digital. And, um, you know, but, but that, it's just a different world. It's a better world. Uh, I do think we're solving better problems, right? We, we've moved away from the technical and, and the manual labor to more of the analytical and, and the problem solving and, and the faster, right? Um, tech has made us much faster, and much more nimble, uh, much more worldwide, much more international versus, like you said, small bubbles. I wouldn't want to go
0: back. I agree so much. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy. Is there anything that you would leave us with about change or overcoming our fear, Mm -hmm. what, what would you leave us with?
1: I think that would say the biggest thing is that any person in an organization or any person thinking of starting their own business can be a change leader and can impact change. You have to go about it in the right way. If you're about to change something that someone else is really emotionally wedded to, value prop, explain why, Explain the benefits. Make sure that you're not unintentionally hurting someone's feelings. We can all be innovative and and move something forward. The people that know the work the best know how to change it for the better the the most. Um, And and so I think that everybody everybody can change. We can all stop telling little kids not to run fast on the playground, right? And encourage them to do something really, really hard. And if it doesn't work out, then that's okay. Um, but not to encourage anybody to stop trying. I think that's the most important part.
0: Thank you for that. This is such a good conversation. I'm I'm so grateful that we're friends and how much I learn from you every time we talk. Same, and every person I introduce you
1: to has amazing complimentary feedback. So it's
0: cool. Yay! All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.